I was talking with one of the men in our church who were encouraging with um, disciple-making opportunities in his life, uh, in his life, and he has stepped out in faith and started an outreach disciple-making Bible study in his workplace. And on Sunday, we were chatting, and he was talking about how nothing seems to be happening. Um, he's a very faithful man. Every every other week, they meet uh, early on a Friday morning, and they gather in his work setting environment. And uh, these men are lost, and he's talked about spiritual battles dealing with infant baptism, uh, works, religion, morale, just you know, moral people not understanding salvation uh, by faith alone. So, well, a disciple-making Bible study doesn't exist just to exist. If it's not producing, shut it down and go find someone who's ready to follow Jesus. And uh, so we were talking about that and uh, and and praying about what he should do. And uh, we were encouraged in that, looking for the Lord. So, uh, Tuesday night, uh, here in our conference, he got together after the, uh, as the preacher had said, go find someone to go pray. And uh, so, at the end of the service, he grabs one of the other men who's actually leading a Bible study in his workplace, and uh, they go and they uh, pray together. So, Yesterday after work, this man in our church uh, decides to go by the house of one of the men who, who's not responding, seemingly in his Bible study, attending, but not making decision. And uh, he says, just want you to know, uh, we got a preaching service at our church uh, tonight, if you'd like to come. And this man's not a heavy-handed sort of uh, type of a uh, type of a guy. He just kind of put it out there. And the guy said, I believe I'll come. So he came last night. Um, this is the man who he's going to basically disband the Bible study of on Friday. And uh, so he comes last night. And at the invitation, Brother Vaughn asked folks who want prayer to stand up. His friend stands up. And this man gets prayed over last night uh, at our invitation. Uh, He's not saved. But I hope God shows up whatever he asked God to pray about. Um, I hope he walks away and he he says to his... uh, his, to our man, and as he leaves, he says, you know, maybe something's missing at my church. <laughs> and uh, so prayer works, amen? amen? Prayer works. Praise the Lord. I'm so thankful for what God's been doing in my life uh, in these days. And uh, I'm glad that now you are clean through the word that I have spoken unto you. Amen? Aren't you thankful for the... The cleansing power of the Word of God. Not a whitewash, a word wash. And uh, I'm thankful for that in my own heart. I appreciate the session we just had um, and working alongside of Pastor Van Gelder. And I can attest to just the reality. And as I look at his example in it, the point he made on persistent just rings so clear. Because I have seen, uh, I've been alongside of him, but I've also failed him and failed the church in the role of intercession, and I have seen him go it alone, and it takes that, and I'm thankful for his example, and that is what, um, that's what's going to multiply, amen, and uh, throughout our church, and so I truly trust you to take that last session, and and God's spirit will lead you step by step, because that is what's happened here. Well, we're here in this session because uh, 
our Savior gave us a command just a few years ago. He said, go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end. We're living in extraordinary days. Do you feel that with me? We're living in extraordinary days. Um, And uh, you just look at what's going on in our world. And I was so appreciative of Brother Prettyman's leading our attention to Matthew 24 and 25. And while that was one of the most helpful times this week for me um, in his teaching on those five foolish versions, I could identify with that. But, you know, in that section of Matthew 24, 25, really the Lord is instructing on how to live in the end times. And the first thing he says in his instruction is, take heed that no man deceive you. So his first warning is, don't get deceived. And that's what this conference has all about, been about. This deceiving work of Satan has to be avoided. So, number one, don't be deceived. Number two, he says, you're going to hear war of wars and rumors of war. See that ye be not troubled. He says, for all these things must come to pass, but the end isn't yet. He says, nation's going to rise against nation. Tribu- uh, uh, there's going to be famines, pestil- uh, pestilence, earthquakes. They're going to kill you. You're going to be hated. The iniquity is going to abound. You know, we live in a world that makes sin easier than ever. Um, with the wealth that we have, poor, you know, poorer cultures can't sin as much as wealthy cultures. Because they have to go work. It's true. Poor countries have sinned, strongholds, but they can't sin as indulgently as rich ones can. They have more time, more resources, more ability. And we have, a, we have a world that can binge on sin like never before. Um, so he says, but don't be despairing. Don't be troubled. These things must come to pass. And here's what I want to ask you. When I put that statement up there, we're living in extraordinary days. What comes into your, what attitude comes into your heart next? Because I really believe that for many believers, when we say, man, we're living in extraordinary days, the word that comes, or the attitude that comes into our heart next is one of fear. I want to say, if you look out on the world scene and you see fear, You're wearing a pair of glasses with the wrong prescription from the wrong optician. (laughs) Satan has framed what's in front of your eyes. Because when God says, when his instructions for living in the end times is to be not troubled. In fact, folks, if we saw the world the way God sees it, we would be filled with faith. Not fear. And that's part of what I want to do in these next few minutes is, I want to change you from fear to faith. Um, and, and in this instruction on how to live in the end times, and I'm so glad I don't have to go too much into this because Brother Phil did such a great job that I think you can get a blessing out of what I'm about to say. Because the Lord, a few verses down in Matthew 24, says this, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then gets this next phrase. 
and then shall the end come. Do you understand the heart of God in that? We look at all of what is disaster and we say we're at the end and the Lord says, no, we're not. That's what he said. The end is not yet. But then the Lord looks on the world and he says, we're going to get the gospel to all the nations and then we're at the end. I, that didn't sink in deep enough. Because, folks, that's it. How we choose to handle the delayed return of Christ in light of the cataclysmic events and culture-shattering forces at work in our time is one of the greatest crises facing our generation of believers. What if the Lord delays His coming 70 years? I want to just say that, okay. What kind of timeline are you working from if the Lord's going to delay his coming for 70 years? And I, and I, I was thinking about that. What timeline are you working on? If the, Lord's, if the goal of God is to get the gospel to all nations and he's waiting for 70 years, is his great commission and the completion it on hold for 70 years? Can it be? Uh, no. So I can't have a 70-year timeline in mind. And I think if the Lord's coming is delayed for 70 years, I think we've got a 20-year timeline we should be working on. We've got to reach our generation. Maybe 30-year, but we've got a 20-year timeline. That we should be absolutely seeing that if the Lord comes, He finds us doing. We're not out to preserve a culture or bemoan the loss of one. We're out to join our God in a multiplication of a church that has the power to establish a new one. Amen. Our rights are not inscribed in the Constitution. Our opportunities are inscribed in the Word of God. We don't have to defend the Constitution. It could burn up tomorrow. We have to proclaim the Word of God. And we have an opportunity to define a a gospel advance like never before. We don't preserve America by going backward. We preserve it by going forward in the mission of the church. And if we'll get our eyes off of the past and look what God wants to do again in the future, we'll see the hope. So I want to just talk about that because this is what I believe God looks at on our world is he thinks we're living in extraordinary days of harvest. We're living in extraordinary days of harvest among the needy billions of the world uh, uh, in our world today. Okay, you say, Pastor Gimel, what do you mean? Well, how about in the Muslim world? 6,000 churches planted in 18 countries in Central and West Africa, 45 formerly unreached Muslim-majority people groups, 200,000 mostly Muslim background believers, now believers, and this has happened in about the last 7 to 10 years in Central and North uh, Africa. What has been the key to that? The key has been much prayer and disciple-making by ordinary believers. Here's a picture of 200 Africans, former Muslims, lined up for believers' baptism. Here's a picture of what was a mosque, it's shuttered because 
It is no longer a mosque. It is absolutely abandoned because the people who attended it are all believers now. That's the way you shut down a mosque. In India, in Uttar Pradesh, which has been called at the most unreached region of the world, the world's greatest mission challenge. 65,000 disciples, nearly 40,000 villages, engaging 160,000 open homes, planning 12,000 multiplying churches. I talked on the phone just a few weeks ago with one of the guys. Um, And what has been the key? The key, warfare, prayer, and reproducible disciple-making. In China, which has been mentioned, an urban area of 16, actually 20 million that mocked Jesus. When someone said something that they didn't believe, they would say, ah, that's just Jesus talk. In 10 years, baptized 1.7, it's well over 2 million believers in 150,000 house churches in an urban setting. Five to ten times more people were saved today in China than were saved on the day of Pentecost. When someone says the day of Pentecost was just a beginning, that's accurate. When they see it as an ending, that's an inaccurate perception. It was the day of first fruits, not final fruits. Five to ten more people. Do you know that there are more, belie- there are more believers in churches than there are members of the Communist Party in China. There's more believers in the house churches of China than are members of the Communist Party. Who is winning? And what's been the key to this particular move of China? In China, constant prayer and multiplying disciple-making. In fact, here's a... Uh, Here's a map put together by a very well-informed gentleman, Paul Hathaway. Um, And in it, he, you know, he's indicating, according to darkness of shading, the the, uh, percentage of Christians. There's one province of China right here, Zhejiang. And in that province, it is 18% Christian. Nearly two out of every, one out of every five. Out of a population of 1.3 billion The estimates that in China there may be 105 to 135, that's 8 to 10 percent Christian. In 1949, when communism took over, there were 4 million believers. Today, there's well over 104 million. God's working. Now, I really want to do something here that I think will really get you out of the fear syndrome. I've got there, there's an amazing book, just was published a couple months ago. You must read it. Killing Christians. Forty Egyptian churches burned to the ground. House churches leaders sentenced to Iran's infamous Evan prison. Eighty Christians murdered in North Korea for merely owning a Bible. Believers nailed to crosses in Syria. And that's, just, that's the news from just one month in 2014. After that, it got really bad. That was the summer of 2014 when the world was shocked by the phenomenal rise of ISIS. ISIS, brutality beyond imagination, reminiscent of the old Assyrian Empire. Right in the same place. You know, when those Assyrians, when word got, came that Assyrians were coming to villages, it wasn't, wasn't uncommon for an entire village to commit mass suicide rather than be taken over. And the goal of ISIS, certainly one of them, is the utter destruction of Christianity. 
But as Tom Doyle writes here in this book, Killing Christians, he says, the one thing about oppressors of Christianity you've never learned is that persecution is always a failed initiative. In fact, killing believers routinely accelerates the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church. Malik, one of the Christ followers there in the Middle East, said every Christian should go to jail at least once in life. It's good for you. He's a former Muslim and he says you'll never be the same after experiencing the loneliness of a jail cell. Then there's that great elation that comes when you realize Jesus is capable of filling 100% of that loneliness. My deepest spiritual lessons were learned on the cold floor with no one there but Jesus. Is Christianity winning or losing? A steel-eyed 20-something Sunni man pressed the muzzle of a semiotic automatic pistol into the side of Haytham Assad's head. Fareed's father was surprised at this early arrival of a couple terrorists. They'd heard about them coming and known that they'd killed some of their neighbors earlier that day. The older man sat frozen, guessing the worst of his visitors' intentions. I don't have any money to give you and wouldn't even if I did. I'm a pastor. Your Jesus is weak. Perspiration trickled down the right side of the intruder's light brown tan face. We need to teach you and your Christian friends a lesson. His wife sat in the corner, wept quietly, afraid of this trigger-happy man. Actually, Haytham said, the pastor, Jesus is anything but weak. He shifted his head away from the gun barrel and eyed the man standing him beside him. A second man near the door stepped towards him, began to threaten, but the man with the gun waved him off, pointed the gun to the ceiling, said, then why didn't he get off the cross if he was so powerful? Answer that, Mr. Christian. He leaned and spat past Haytham's cheek. The pastor turned to face the men in his living room. He didn't want to get off the cross. That was the whole reason he came. My sins, your sins, they had to be paid for. The way I plan to pay for my sins is to blow your head off. And the sweaty man brought the gun down, pointed at Ahatham's temple, and pulled the trigger. The cell phone startled Farid, the son of this pastor. He squinted at the faint light seeping between the closed curtains. The sun was not fully up. Yet up, he pressed the talk button and began the call he dreaded, news of the night's terrorist rampage in Latakia, his parents' hometown. He was relieved to hear his father's voice. He could make out his mother crying in the background as they recounted the gut-wrenching encounter with two terrorists in the dark hours of the morning, one that had promised to kill him and pulled the trigger of an unloaded gun. Fareed is a believer. His, he's in Damascus, a country absolutely torn apart by the Muslim conflict and the civil war raging between a ruthless regime and all sorts of vying terrorist groups. Damascus is destroyed. All those cities, the Syrian people are going through, you could almost call it hell. And in the middle of it, Farid is a believer and he lives in, in, in Damascus. And just a few months ago, he and nine of his fellow believers got together. They arrived in a nondescript basement. By the way, Farid went up and he took his father out of that threatened area. On the way, his father 
insisted on stopping to visit a Muslim family as they went along the Mediterranean coast. Fareed said his, he says to his, uh, Haytham says to his son, Fareed, I know you think I was foolish to go to that house, but they called me just yesterday. The father of the house has had eight Jesus dreams this month. He had questions. Fareed shook his head and he sighed, Dad, I wouldn't expect you to make your escape any other way. I know you never miss an opportunity to visit with someone about Jesus. So Fareed's in Damascus. That night, ten leaders from that local believer, they arrive in this nondescript basement, silently on schedule at 2 a.m. They exchange wordless greetings, crowd into their meeting room, and everyone is seated. Fareed begins to address in a slight whisper. If we don't leave with our family soon, I'll not, I'm not sure we'll ever get out alive. Two nights ago, my father in Latakia was threatened with a gun to his head, and Hannah and I barely made it to, through Homs alive. It seems utter chaos is normal for Syria now. For he paused, eyed his fellow believers. I have to wonder if this is really the place we should raise our children. We must pray for God's direction. I'm calling for a week of fasting. In scripture, King Hezekiah faced a deadly situation in Jerusalem. The Assyrian King Sennacherib publicly threatened to destroy Jerusalem, a threat he was fully capable of carrying out. On his own, Hezekiah could not stand against Sennacherib's death machine. The Assyrian had already laid a path of destruction through what's now our country in Lebanon as well on his way to Israel. Fareed raised his right hand and pointed to the ceiling. But Hezekiah was so dependent on the Lord that he resisted the urge to do anything. He took the threatening letter from the Syrian king and laid it before the Lord in the temple. Hezekiah sought the Lord. He prayed and he waited, but not for long. Fareed smiled. God answered the next day. He sent an angel who annihilated the Syrian army on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Fareed paused, folded his hands. This is a time like that. Only God has the answer. Starting tonight for the next seven days... Let's each lay out this question before our Lord. Do we stay in Syria or do we go? For one week, let's cease all activities except the greatest one, prayer. After that, if God calls you and your family to leave, begin the journey as fast as you can. If he calls you to stay, meet me back here one week from tonight, same time. Freed opened his hand and spread them toward the group. His plan for you may be different from his plan for me. That's okay. There's no pressure to decide one way or the other. None of us are trying to be heroes. We want God's will. Whether we stay or go, we take Jesus' message of love and forgiveness with us. A dozen men nodded in concert. Now let's pray. And they dismissed. Seven days later, chaos reigns in the streets of Damascus. Gun battles consume a dozen square blocks along Farid's first route to the follow-up meeting. Damaged rows slow his progress on alternate routes. He arrives 30 minutes late, wondering if he'll walk into an empty room. Although he'd been serious when he said no one should feel pressure, he sure hoped at least one or two would have come to the same conclusion he had. He would face martyrdom alone if it came to that. But having fellowship with a few other believers in the meantime would be an encouragement. He descended the steps from the sidewalk, paused at the door, grasped the doorknob, and turned it slowly. Dim light appeared as the door swung open. Fareed's jaw dropped. Twenty-five men seated on the floor looked up at him. The ten leaders from last week's meeting had all returned along with 15 new disciples. 
each shared their story of how God had led them. And a handful of newcomers shared testimonies also. They agreed that they would pool their funds since God had called them this day. And they'd buy a plot of land preparing for what was certainly to come. It would be their graveyard since no one else would bury them. So Fareed writes this personal word. He says this, so, brothers and sisters, so many have been killed already. It seems that our little group has, only, has, is, has the only empty graveyard in Syria. As I'm writing, none of us have died yet. We rejoice by greeting one another with these words, the graveyard's still empty. <laughs> we all know it will not stay empty. But meanwhile, we're grateful. Satan rampages through Syria. The line fighting to annihilate the church. Torture and killing continues every day. And each month we hear of new terrorist groups forming. All seem intent on outdoing one another and committing unspeakable evils. I think what followers of Christ in Syria fear most are the crucifixions. It's a horrifying prospect. Death on a cross is gruesome. And on top of that, crowds mock and torture the believers leading up to actually nailing them onto crosses. Some who face this are new in the faith. And I don't blame them for being frightened. But it'd be an honor to die for Jesus in this way. Just think, the Lamb of God went to the cross in Jerusalem only 200 miles from Damascus. Now, 2,000 years later, the prospect hangs over our heads as a real possibility, just like it did for Jesus and his followers. But regardless of which of us end up literally crucified, the question is, have we not died already? Paul, who was converted right here in Syria, said, I am crucified with Christ. I consider Syrian believers fortunate to have a tangible reminder of this fact. Why? Because I used to think I lived a life of sacrifice, but that changed when the war broke out. Although Syria has so few believers that, that, that there was danger before, I did not really know what it meant to sacrifice. What I thought was sacrifice was actually just inconvenience. Once we bought the graveyard, we gave up our right to live as we pleased. We consigned ourselves to a violent death, whether a sudden bullet in the brain, beheading, or a torturous crucifixion. Our lives rest in God's hands. There is remarkable freedom in having no expectations, no plans for tomorrow. The question I and my others start every day with, Jesus, what do you have planned for me and my family? Only today matters. Only how I live for Jesus counts. Everything else is superficial. When I hand over my life to my Lord, knowing each day may be my last on earth, I am more at peace than ever before. Is your life about Jesus and nothing else? When you may die at any moment, it has to be that way. We're all called to live only for him no matter what. Paul once, although Paul once sacrificed Christians, he met Jesus, gave up his rights, and made himself a living sacrifice. Once you live like this, you grasp the most profound fulfillment possible in life. Pray for us in Syria, but please don't feel bad for us. We have never been more free. And even though we're willing to die, our graveyard's still empty. Does that change the way you look at the world? Doesn't that make fear go out the window? A man's about to be killed by ISIS. I should actually say a man in the Middle East is is told, I want you to meet with a former ISIS follower. A little startling. He says, I killed Christians and I enjoyed doing it. But he says, I began to have dreams about a man in white who would come and say, you're killing my people. I started to feel really sick and uneasy about what I was doing. He says, then one day I was killing a Christian, 
And the Christian said to me this. He said, I know you're going to kill me, but before I, get, well, before I kill you, can I give you my Bible? The Christian was killed. The ISIS fighter took the Bible, began to read it. Jesus met him in another dream, and now that ISIS fighter, that ISIS fighter is a follower of Jesus. Who knows, maybe that man, just like Saul, will become Paul. Raymond Abu Mikhail in Lebanon had a strange knock at his door. A wealthy businessman said, would you baptize me? He didn't know this man at all. He tells a story that this man, as he's a Muslim in Mosul, looks at ISIS and says, if that's Islam, I don't want it. He gets in a private plane, flies to Lebanon, shows up at the airport and says, show me someone who can baptize me. And Raymond Abu Mikhail leads this man to the Lord. Is Christianity winning or losing? By the way, when you talk about Islam, it is true that Islam is growing faster than Christianity, if you lay it out. Islam is at 1.9% growth, and you can see the other religions there. But do you know the fact is this? Islam is growing faster than Christianity in general, but evangelical Christianity is growing faster than Islam and two times faster than Buddhism and Hinduism. If you call out of the umbrella of Christianity and look at evangelical, it's growing faster than Islam. So what do we have in our world today? There's two world realities that lead to two mission priorities. And honestly, I don't have to spend a lot of time here because really these messages have already been laid before us. The first world reality is spiritual conflict. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities. As brother, as Dr. Flanders preached last night, the gates of hell will not prevail against the advance of the church. This kind goes not out but by prayer and fasting. That's the whole point. Spiritual conflict, there is a war in the unseen realm. The second thing that's happening in our world today, and that is gospel advance. If you were to ask me what are the two big things happening in our world today, I believe the top two are those. A spiritual conflict in the unseen realm and a gospel advance. This is what God has for us. Look at, um, just, you know, just look at those verses there. You're going to receive power and you're going to be my witnesses. The Lord isn't slack concerning His promise. He's coming back. He hasn't forgotten. His problem is He's long-suffering. He doesn't want any to perish. So he's not ready to come back yet because there's some that would. His agenda is getting the gospel preached to all nations. That's what's really happening in our world today. And so if that's really what's going on, what should be our concurrent mission priorities? Number one, warfare prayer. And we've said so much about it. I don't need to say much about it other than to just, uh, just throw this in front of you with this thought. How can you, as was just mentioned, is prayer central to the activity of your ministry? Is prayer central to the activity of your life and your ministry? And we're all challenged on this point. What part does warfare prayer have in your philosophy of ministry? See, a philosophy is a set of ideas that work together to achieve an end or to explain a process. A philosophy is a set of things. You've got a set of ideas. What where is prayer in your set of ideas? My son, uh, Jonathan, had the privilege to travel with Dr. Jim just this last uh, fall. 
And you know, prayer has a central part in the philosophy of Minutemen ministry. It's central. My son describes prayer meetings that produce spiritual breakthrough. Prayer isn't, hey, let's pray before these guys are coming. Hey, let's stand up. And the, prayer is central. Pastor Van Gelder was talking about prayer being central. Look, if prayer, if, if, if prayer is absent, how in the world is it central? And if it's not central, how in the world do we have a correct philosophy of ministry? My burden is that this week some philosophies of ministry would change. That we would say, wait just a minute. Look, if your philosophy of how a car operates leaves out the engine, is the car going to be successful? Well, you might say, I got a car. Yeah, but you left out the engine. Your philosophy of car is incorrect. If you leave out prayer, you're leaving out something that makes, by fundam- makes the fundamental forward advance of whatever you're trying to do impossible. We have failed philosophies of ministry. And then that leads to disciple-making. Okay, if spiritual conflict is the number one world reality, I must engage warfare prayer. If gospel advance is the number one, second one, then what must my mission priority be? It must be disciple making. I believe, I believe there's two critical, fundamental, great commission related flaws in our philosophy of ministry. We're trying to overcome satanic influence by carnal worldly measures, and we actually play into his hands. So we're not actually engaging spiritual conflict through warfare prayer where we're intended to win it. Secondly, we're trying to make up for a body life in our church that has little expectation to multiply and has no training and strategy to make disciples who multiply. So we have an attractional philosophy of ministry. Our main goal is attendance. If more are attending, we feel we're succeeding. But the fundamental philosophy of ministry that we exist to equip our people to do ministry and that their, that the main commission is disciple making and that, that that holds the key to actually fulfilling the great commission, it's missing. And if our ministry philosophies are flawed on these two points, it's done deal. We're not going forward. I'm telling you, what, 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 what God really wants to do, this thing could go global. This thing could go viral if we get, in, if we get into it. So I, a few of you have um, just asked me a little bit about Cameroon, so I just wanted to throw in here the opportunity we had had and what God's doing. Last year, just prior to this time, one of my sons and this man, Pastor Ernest, in the, in the blue shirt, um, he and I trekked. We were just looking for open doors. Here's a man, David, in the red who was just uh, ready to actually, I mean, he, he asked us clear gospel. He got saved and wanted a church in his home just right away. Well, that was in J- January. And then in June, we took a team of 31 um, this past June, and we, we, we tripled that with nationals. Um, and so we divided in 10 different areas, mostly nationals, and, and us alongside of them, and national pastors and we saw about 1,120 souls saved as we lived in over 20 different villages. 
amazing spiritual warfare was won. 274 baptized, 23 churches began baby churches. Um, and, uh, and God was working. By the way, do you know you don't plant mature churches? You know, what if, you know, what if a, a woman pregnant said, man, I hate, I don't want to, I just want to birth an 18-year-old. I tell you, both she and that baby would die, wouldn't they? <laughs> and that's what's happening. Parents are dying and babies aren't being born. Because we tried to start with a mature congregation. You don't birth a, you don't birth a mature church. You birth baby churches. Um, and uh, so we got baby churches out there. Um, and... and uh, so, God's done some neat things. This, uh, this man here was reached uh, two years ago. And this man over here on the other side, Patrick, uh, knew what was going on when we were there two years ago. And he didn't want anything to do with it. But about 11 months later, uh, over a year ago, December, uh, Emmanuel met Patrick and led him to the Lord. I never met Patrick. And none of us had met Patrick. But Emmanuel led him to the Lord. Patrick... Um, Two or three weeks later, he wasn't one at home at the time, goes home, gets his Bible, and he, and he leads his family to the Lord. Then he doesn't know what to do. Patrick doesn't know what to do. But he says he begins to go through his quarter, and he would just open up the Bible, read it, and explain it. And the people said, hey, we like that. And so when we arrive in June, here's Patrick. He's sitting there, and, and, and in front of Patrick in this home is this. And I had no, we had nothing to do with that. Um, I look at that and I said, this guy just planted a church and he's not even baptized. He wasn't baptized. <laughs> um, and, and so um, we actually did baptize, but we didn't baptize him. We baptized 12 more that he led to the Lord. Amen. And here's Patrick. And Patrick has got... Um, uh, he, he's built this shelter in one of our groups. I wasn't there the Sunday that we actually ministered with him there. And here he's got DePasso and Adrian. This is his wife, Stella, and my son, Daniel. And, and these two men here, Patrick's, I mean, he's discipling them. He brought them to meetings. And, and, and you can see, yeah, my guy, my, my guy Adrian, you know, uh, he's there. And, and I, I didn't teach him to do that, really. So we baptized them. And um, Augustine, and uh, here's Patrick. Alfred, and then just a few days later, Patrick was baptizing Peter. And I was on the, I'm on the banks there, and Patrick's baptizing him. And, I, and I'm saying, you know what? I, I'm never going to be in that water again. Uh, I was filled with a spirit of joy and so forth. I said, that, that's Patrick's job. I do get bugged just a little bit, and I don't blame anyone for it, but I, I bug it when, it's, when, when the white missionary is the one in the water. When other believers have already been one, they should be doing the baptizing. And uh, Peter was just filled with joy as he's baptized there, and Peter was in our training. Um, so we returned last December, and Pastor Ernest, and we got these men together, and we taught them Discovery Bible Study. Christopher, 
who's leading his church, Pa John leading his church, Alfred leading his church, um, and, uh, and these men. I just wanted to throw this in. As we were leaving this past December, they, there was a quarter we'd never been to, and they really said, you've got to go to this quarter. They just want us to visit. And a person had died, and they had this funeral in this courtyard here. We just waited all through the night. Music's pounding. We're just sleeping there and wake up the next morning waiting for opportunity. I just want to put this in front of you. I, I, you'll have to pardon me. But that moment is one of the greatest moments of my life. When I'm inside that casket, and I don't care if it's soon or later, I don't know how soon, but I, that, I want that picture over my casket. So I just want to say there's nothing greater than preaching the gospel and watching God work. I'm telling you, some young people here, if God's calling you to missions, man, go for it. There's nothing greater. Nothing greater. Preach the gospel. And the lady said, this lady, Krista, actually behind us, she's been a believer now for two years, and she said, she said, you know, after that moment was over, she said the peace of God was in this compound. Peace of God. And this, this is the crowd that responded. And Pastor Ernest. Actually, the greatest miracle is not preaching the gospel. The greatest preacher is making, the greatest miracle is making a disciple. And the greatest miracle is making trainers of disciples. And that's what we were doing here. Here's some of the men. Patrick, I told you his story. Augustine. This man, just a few weeks ago, he went through the night Saturday so he could be there to lead his church on Sunday. Trek through the night. Christopher. Um, Alfred. Here's Alfred right here. I'm, I'm, I'm there on the Sunday that I'm there. Alfred comes up to me on Monday and he says, oh, he says, this is really great. He says, we've been in some training this week. He says, I didn't have time to prepare for Sunday. And he says, I didn't know what to preach. And he said, I just asked God to lead me. And God led me to John 10 and he was glowing. Now, I didn't teach him that the Holy Spirit would lead him that way, but the Holy Spirit led him that way. And he was rejoicing in it. Um. And now our next, our, next, uh, our next step, we believe the Lord lead us to actually making audio Bible translation with a couple of the languages there in that region. I'm going to ask you this. What's it going to take to complete the Great Commission? What's it going to take to complete the Great Commission? Uh, let's just break this down a little bit. Okay, track with me a little bit. What would the Great Commission fulfilled in the USA look like? What would the Great Commission fulfilled in the USA look like? Okay, so, well, here is, here's a starting point. According to the census, there are about 19,500 incorporated municipalities in America in total. Okay? About 20,000 incorporated municipalities from 100 up to the largest is New York City, 8-something million. Um, all right, well, let's just break that down a little bit. Some of those, there's about, um, uh, there are... Um, 752 of these are greater than 50,000. So if we take those, those greater than 50,000, split them into 25,000 persons, person chunks, then the, what, what, what it would look like would be 23,180 sectors. We'd need 23,000 sectors to reach when we think in terms of municipalities and 25,000 person chunks in greater than uh, 50,000 municipalities. Um, 23,000 to reach those sectors. Now, if you were to actually take our 
our U.S. population, which is about 322 million. Divide that down. Uh, so we were going to reach 10% of our population with an average church size of 100. We would need 32,226 churches. So we could have a church for every one of those municipalities, 24,000, or we could actually think also in terms of to reach 10% of our population with an average church size of 100, we would need 32,226. Now, do you know how many independent fundamental churches there are in America? According to the 2009 Church Still Works book survey done, it's about 13,700, something like that. 13,000. How does that compare to our number of 32,000? About one to three, right? Would you say that? Okay, so here, li- listen. If every church, independent church in America, planted two more churches, our Great Commission would be done. Yes? No? Is that, you agree? I mean, those churches would obviously multiply disciples. But... Wouldn't that be kind of done? No? Yeah? No? It sounds good to me, don't you think so? Okay, okay. So, now what would the Great Commission fulfilled in our world look like? What would the Great Commission fulfilled in our world look like? Well, we know there's about 16,000, 17,000 people groups, but there's about 6,600 unreached people groups in our world. In other words, they're groups that maybe not have much Christian present, witness present, but they certainly can't. They don't have the resources and the strength to actually have a multiplying movement within them and enough, enough believers to actually reach their own people. They're unreached in that sense. 6,600 unreached people groups. So here we have a responsibility for the USA and a responsibility for UPG, unreached people groups. USA and unreached people groups, and we have about 13,000, 11, 10, 12,000 churches. So what if every one church took two municipalities and every two churches took one unreached people group? We could get this Great Commission done. If every one took two and every two took one, what do you think? You know why you're looking at me that way? Is because we don't think that the Great Commission might ever get done. We're not operating according to it. We're not planning for it. And when I throw it out there, you look at me cross-eyed. Like Pastor Gilmore, I can't even take this in. Because we're not even trying to. When I throw a few numbers out there that actually do crystallize our great commission, we can't take it in. And we can't take it in because we're not even trying. We're in unbelief. And folks, it wouldn't be all that difficult for just the independent fundamental Baptist churches of America to get the job done. And God has a whole lot more believers than just us. In fact, he's turning to others because we're so unbelieving. 
God doesn't need anyone. So, this Great Commission could get done. We don't have to live in fear. We can live in faith, and we can get on board with God's, what He wants to do in our day. So I'm going to throw a few lessons at you in regard to um, what God, how God wants to operate. First of all, a, li- a lesson from the life of Christ, how He operated. Um, and we see this in Mark 3. Uh, Mark 3, verses 8 there and uh, 14, where He chooses 12. Now, without spending a whole lot of time there, I want you to realize that in Mark chapter 3, Jesus is actually inundated with multitudes. They're coming at him from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, from beyond Jordan, Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude. And he's surrounded by them. And in the setting of that, he slips away up into a mountain, he prays all night, comes back down, and he ordains twelve. What I want you to understand is that when Jesus chose his 12 disciples, he wasn't choosing 12 because that's all he could get. He actually had thousands, and he chose 12 because he had to strategically do something with 12 that he could never do with thousands. And what he could do is he could make disciples. If Jesus made disciples in small groups, we ought to follow his example. And the lesson we find here is the disciple-making potential of small groups. Now, look what he says there in verse 14. He ordained 12 that they should be with him, that is, gather and spend time with Jesus, so that he could send them to go and speak for Jesus. Aren't you just amazed how Jesus put his disciples in the middle of some pretty amazing things? Just think. Okay, he's going to feed 5,000. But before he does that, he actually looks at his 12 and says, you feed them. Now, is that crazy or what? Is that crazy or what? 12 men. Okay, hey, look. Look at all these guys you've got to feed. Go feed them. Go feed them? That's crazy. It was crazy. About as crazy as you giving an opportunity for ministry to a brand new believer. Huh? And those men have to wrestle through it and they finally come up with, okay, give me what you got and Jesus is the power. And do you know Jesus was always putting those disciples in the middle of ministry and making them feel like they were responsible for it? Why? Because they were going to be. He was multiplying himself. And then they confront, in Mark 6, um, uh, what happens next? Well, there's spiritual opposition. They have to overcome spiritual opposition. We've been talking about this. Whenever believers step out to obey Christ and his great commission, they always encounter spiritual strongholds. In Mark chapter 9, their lack of faith in spiritual warfare with the uh, demon-possessed person. Um, And then in Luke 22, the personal assault in spiritual warfare on Peter himself. Of course, Jesus' own example of being confronted by Satan there in the wilderness. You know, I used to think that uh, Satan caught Jesus at a weak moment there in that wilderness. Actually, it's the opposite. The Spirit actually led him in there so he would be a strong moment in the wilderness. And he'd be ready for Satan's attack. The disciples come back and they said, 
Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And Jesus says, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall by any means hurt you. You know, they're saying, Lord, we saw, we saw a demon cast out of a woman. And Jesus said, you thought you saw something. I saw him cast out of heaven. He says, Satan is more defeated than you ever imagined. I saw him fall from heaven. And you have all power over him. Spiritual warfare. Here's another lesson, a lesson from the early church. The early church, um, in, uh, we see it there in, um, in, of course, in the book of Acts. Uh, first of all, they're daily house-to-house in church meetings. So they've got, not only are they meeting in a large corporate meeting at the temple, but they're actually in small group meetings, house meetings, church-to-church. And I, I don't believe that the apostles were showing up in all these house meetings and leading them, and they couldn't meet until the apostles showed up. I believe ordinary believers were gathering around the Word of God, prayer, all throughout Jerusalem. It was a huge church, obviously. Um, and so ordinary believers meeting house to house. Then in Acts 8, we've got the great persecution, and they're scattered abroad, except the apostles are not. The apostles stay, everyone's scattered abroad, they go about everywhere preaching the word. And then Saul is one to the Lord, and at the end of Acts chapter 9, and verse 31, we find this, then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. I just want to ask you, where did those churches come from? Who planted them? They weren't the apostles. They stayed home. Who did? Where, who planted Where they started? And here's the fact is, is that we see the church planting potential of ordinary believers. See, we've turned church planting into a vocation and it certainly is a valid vocation, but church multiplication should be the spontaneous result of disciples multiplying. Um, in, in Asia, Acts 19, the, this continued as Paul's there in, in, uh, in Ephesus for the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord. Who in the world brought the word of the Lord to all of Asia? Because Paul was in Ephesus the whole time. It was the people. So the lesson is, the church planting potential of ordinary believers. Go any... Um, um, they went anywhere, they grouped those who believed, just like they'd experienced, and of course then they encountered persecution. Um, they endured persecution. Paul prepared folks, he said, through much tribulation you will enter the kingdom. Um, listen to what Roland Allen says here, there on page 142. In talking about Paul's ministry, he says this, in little more than ten years, Paul established the church in four provinces of the empire, Galatia, Macedonia, Canada, Asia. Before AD 47, no churches. In AD 57, Paul could speak as if his work there was done. He could plan extensive tours further into the West without anxiety, lest those churches which he founded might perish in his absence for want of his guidance and support. So far as the foundation of the churches is concerned, it's perfectly clear that the writer of Acts intends to represent Paul's work as complete. The churches were really established. Whatever disasters fell upon them in later years, whatever failure there was, whatever ruin, the failure was not due to any insufficiency or lack of care and completeness in the apostles' teaching or organization. When he left them, he left them because his work was fully accomplished. This is truly an astonishing fact. Isn't that amazing? 
you know, Paul said as he's leaving Ephesus, he says, I know that after my coming, wolves are going to come. And even out of your own selves. Do you know you can't so, make, you can't so plant a church that it's no longer vulnerable? Can't be done. Even Paul's churches. He says, the fact that churches should be founded so rapidly, so securely, seems to us today, accustomed to difficulties, uncertainties, failures, disastrous relapses of our own missionary work, almost incredible. Many missionaries in latter days have received a larger number of converts than Paul. Many preached over wider areas. None have established so churches. We've long forgotten that such things could be. We've long accustomed ourselves to accept as an axiom of missionary work that converts in a new country must be submitted to a very long probation and training extending over generations before they can be expected to be able to stand alone. Today, if a man ventures to suggest that there may be something in the methods by which Paul attains such wonderful results worthy of our careful attention, perhaps of our imitation, he's in danger of being accused of revolutionary tendencies. Here's another lesson, a lesson from the Baptists in early America. Because what I'm talking about, folks, is actually the birthright of what Baptists have been. What I'm describing here today is the foundation of what we've actually been built on. What I'm talking today may be foreign to Presbyterians, may be foreign to Episcopalians, may be foreign to other uh, you know, Catholic traditions. Um, I'm telling you, it's not foreign to what Baptists are. And if what I'm talking about is striking you, then we fall into the same traditionalism of other patterns of existing works of God, or no longer works of God. So here's what we have here. In 1939 to 1750, here's just a few blanks for you, um, there were 58 churches. Now in 1745, Schubel Stearns is saved. Um, A few years later, he's involved with a man named Daniel Marshall. Um, they start Sandy Creek Baptist Church. After two years, they have a single church, but actually, they actually, within six months, were actually in a church planning mode. Then by 1771, they see 42 churches in six states. And then by 1755 to 1850, they have 5,000 churches um, in the Bible Belt. So 1755 to 1850, 5,000 churches. Now, that's a set of numbers. I want to give you another set of numbers. I didn't, didn't get my notes. And just write this here. This is kind of simple. You can do this. Write the, write the date, 1771, in your margin there, and just write 100. In 1771, there's 100 churches that have been counted Baptist churches in, um, in America. In 1786, just about 15 years later, there's 137 registered. And then I want you to write this down, 1836, this is 50 years later, the actual count is 7,299. This is Baptist churches in early America. You can see there in your blank, the, in your, on your notes, the Baptist and Methodist clergy were of the people. The local preacher was a neighbor, a friend, a relative. So that means that the leadership of the churches came out of the harvest that was present in that locale. The leadership was not imported. The leadership grew out of that harvest and was growing out of it in a relatively rapid manner. By se- in 1700, Baptists were scattered, insignificant, even called an obscure sect in America. By 1800, Baptists were the largest denomination in America. So much so that a Baptist preacher named John Leiden, Leland was able to go and talk to James Madison, who was crafting a Bill of Rights. And John Leland was able to influence James Madison to write into the Bill of Rights the enshrinement of freedoms of religion. You say, how did he do that? Did he say, man, I look like, boy, this is really bad going around here. If we put this in the Bill of Rights, then we'll be able to get the freedom we want. Wrong. 
the thing that gave John Leland the platform to talk to Jane Madison was this fact. In Virginia, a few years later, there were four churches. Those four churches were state churches. Outside of those four churches, six started that refused to be state-ordained or state-licensed. They endured some persecution. The leaders were jailed, and as you see some pictures, they preached out of their jail windows. The product of that was that in a short period of five to ten years, within the state of Virginia alone, there were over 200 independent Baptist congregations. And when John Leland goes talks to Jane Madison, he is not talking about a concept that is new in his own mind. It is a concept that is working its way across the state of Virginia. In other words, what I'm trying to say is the Bill of Rights had popular support because of the faith of Baptist church planters. We're trying to protect our freedoms by enshrining them so that they enforce freedom. That's not the way it works. You change a people, then they change their laws. And that's what happened because of a Baptist church planting movement in early America. A lesson from the churches of Korea. Korea has been called... The miracle, Korea has been called the miracle of modern missions because it doubled, the church of Korea doubled in size every decade of the 20th century. Where did this come from? John Nevius was a missionary to China. In 1884, there was not a single Christian in Korea, or not, not nothing. 1884. In 1890, there was maybe 100. There were five men. Horace Underwood, Samuel Moffat, Charles, Charles Allen Clark, H.G. Uh, Appenzeller, and maybe another man or two. And they asked John Nevius to come to meet with them for two weeks of training in Korea. 100 believers. 1890. That two week of training has been called perhaps the most significant two weeks of training in the history of missions. Because it put in their hands a different model of ministry when it came to missions. What it did was it taught them the immediate potential in new believers and new churches. That new believers can speak for Jesus, that new churches can lead their own meetings and mission. And here are some of the principles that John Nevius put into the teaching. The missionary role was to preach the gospel and train not to pastor churches. As I look at Paul's ministry in the New Testament, I really don't see him pastoring those churches. He ordained elders, and they never looked at him as their pastor. He was their spiritual father. They had their own pastors. The leadership was in the church. There was an immediacy of self-support, gospel witness, and lay leadership. New, commi- new converts were commissioned to reach someone else immediately. Every believer was learning from someone and teaching someone else. Bible class training system would guide unpaid lay leaders of their own churches. Weekly discovery Bible study, two annual training gatherings on a cyclical basis of week, and an annual six-week Bible institute to support the growing um, spiritual Uh, life of the leaders within those churches. Do you know that in 1890 they began this work? Do you know that in 1912, 22 years later, the Church of Korea actually had its own first cross-cultural missions movement in 22 years? They're not reaching someone else. 
1914, they arrive. In two years, they're speaking Chinese. They arrive and you're given three or four existing churches. Now, in these existing churches, they're used to, the, the, they're used to paying their volunteer workers. They're also used to the fact that there is no lay preaching or teaching going on in their churches. And the Korean missionary philosophy is totally different from the Chinese missionary philosophy. And at first, it's not going well at all. But they stick with it. They refuse to start paying their volunteers. They refuse to uh, change their... uh, And within a period of about 12, 13 years, they go from four churches to 10 churches to 41 churches to over 1,000 baptized. And they even surpass their Korean rate of growth. If you want to look more into that, read The Planting and Development of Missionary Churches by John Nevius. And of course then, there is that great movement of satanic attack that we see um, with uh, Kim Song-ju and Kim Il-sung and so forth. And you realize that there was a spiritual battle at work in Korea. So the Great Commission is more than an end goal. It's an everyday strategy placed in the hands of ordinary disciples that will multiply believers in churches anywhere in the world. Go everywhere, make disciples who obey, baptize them immediately, and teach them to obey all things. I was just this past fall, just visiting, just, I wasn't there for any reason, and uh, I was uh, with a pastor in Virginia, just happened to be there, it was a Saturday, no service, but he was just talking about what God was doing, and he was really excited, he says, God's at work in our church. He says, over the last recent months, I think he's told me, we have seen 28 people saved. It wasn't a real big church. That was great. That was shouting ground. And I looked at this man and I knew he was a good man. God's working. That wouldn't just come out of nowhere. God's working. And he said, I've got a lot of work to do. He says, I'm not sure I'm going to disciple them all. I said, okay. All right. Well, I'm not there to teach him. But I thought I'd just throw it out there. I said, hey, well, you know, what if, uh, boy, man, that's exciting. You got to get your people involved in that, don't you? Um, Hey, how, how about dividing your church into small groups and, and teaching them how to make disciples who multiply. And he just said, he said, oh, I'd never go there. He says, I don't want a church full of cliques. And I could tell he was nowhere ready to track down what I was going to talk about. Now, I wasn't there to talk about it. I didn't say anything more. Other than I just grieved. This man's looking at 28 new converts and he's thinking he's the discipler. Man, has he missed it. And he's a good man, and God's working, and he's not teaching his people to make disciples. And he's, not, he's opposed to it. I think that was startling. He was opposed to it. Well, how does God take ordinary believers and enable them to become a multiplying disciple-making? And what I'm saying is this, what's it going to take to fulfill the Great Commission? Because this is what the Great Commission is. Three dynamics of multiplication. The first is a person of peace. Um, A person of peace. I I would love to have time to actually do a Bible study together with you all and and have fun with this. Um, Looking at Luke chapter 10. A person of peace is someone who is actually prepared within a people group who is there to become that multiplier. And we could talk a lot about this. Um, There are 
some blanks over on page. Um, actually, uh, I set it up to use it a little differently, but over on um, page uh, 145. A person of peace is someone whose prime characteristic is one of peace, bottom 145. This is someone who welcomes you uh, and allows you into their home. They're prepared by God within a community or a circle of relationship. They understand a community as being part of it. They are a bridge to others. And they, are res- they have respected influence or maybe infamous influence, like the woman at the well. And so what, what we're saying is that if we'll operate, we'll find God is actually in the multiplying mode. Cornelius, woman at the well, Philippian jailer, all those you see it in Scripture. We need to join God in the multiplying mode. What we we end up actually doing is we don't step into the multiplying mode. The moment someone gets saved, we try to get a meeting with me, getting with me, meeting with me, which is certainly valid, but I don't immediately say, who can you go tell? And I don't send them. I don't commission them. I I don't engage them. I just get them engaged to me, but I don't teach them to engage their harvest field. And that's the disciple making mode. It's immediately engaging them in gospel witness. Second thing that we have in regard to uh, the dynamics of multiplication is the matter of discovery Bible study. The matter of discovery Bible study is it's a series of simple questions that guide a small group to discover, obey, and share God's truth. Um, now, uh, if you look there, uh, just back, flip over to page 146. Um, let me just uh, challenge you with the thought here. What is a disciple anyway? Well, disciples are made to multiply. If you abide in me, you're going to bear much fruit. So a disciple is not complicated. Someone who hears God's voice, obeys whatever he says, and leads others to hear and obey it. A disciple who doesn't obey isn't a disciple. Doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. So if you know something and you're not obeying it, you're not actually a disciple, you're deceived. You hear that? See, our you know, honestly, you say, man, they got to know so much. Okay, look. If you lead your congregation or you lead your disciples to know so much, but you never lead them to obey it and put them in a context of obeying it, do you realize you're not actually creating disciples, you're creating deceptors or deceptees or whatever? How much do you have to know in order to obey what Jesus is telling you? That one thing. And the more you know but you don't obey, you're not getting better, you're getting worse. So, our concept in discipleship is loading up information so they know all the answers. But listen, a lot of information is going to come down the road. There's no problem with that. What's problem with is loading up information and then expecting them to obey after I put the load on. How about giving them bite-sized pieces and immediately making them passers-on of it? Commissioning them. So now you go tell someone else. You teach someone else. See, we have made disciple-making this position in our church or a disciple okay once you pass these things now you can actually become a discipler we've kind of got these qualifications you know when it comes there are qualifications for deacon and pastor but folks there's only one qualification for being a disciple maker and that's being a believer and disciple making is not a position it's a responsibility and it's not an achievement it's a command And it's a command that we're faced with from the moment we're saved when the Spirit inside says, Go tell! And you go tell nothing more than your story. That's all you know, but go tell it. 
and then come, I'm going to give you something more, and you go tell that. And we begin to multiply disciples along the obedience pathway. And that's what, when I'm talking about disciple making, I'm talking about that process put in place in the lives of new believers. And it's amazing what God's going to take with it. And you feel so weak in it. But God does miracles. The discovery questions are really simple. What's happening in this passage? What do we discover about God? What do we discover about people? How does this passage apply to our own lives in a way that changes us? Since this is true, what must I do to obey? And with whom will you share what you just learned? And some awesome things happen as people seriously engage with God in that way. And then we have the third dynamic, is one we've been all over this week, and that is warfare prayer. Here's some blanks for you. There's something I just threw down. God's church is not a civilian population, nor a standing army. You see it there in the bottom 144? Are you with me? Bottom 144. God's church is not a civilian population, nor a standing army. We are an assault force on assignment behind enemy lines. Satan's attack is not something to be avoided. It is something to be assumed. There is no draft. Participation is compulsory. Every believer will, by means of persecution or tribulation, enter into the kingdom and expand the reign. And this is a problem we face. It's a cultural one. But if the church of God would take off its civilian mindset and put on an advancing army mindset, we'd win the day. And this is spiritual warfare. So the Great Commission can be... There's some, there's some notes uh, later on here um, that you can fill in the blanks in regard to the benefit of Discovery Bible Study. Um, let me just mention, it, later on in this training is um, a layout of how to have a discovery, uh, a disciple-making meeting, and you can see the training there. It's in your notes down a few pages later. Um, J.D. Payne put in, the arrow is in your notes there. Um, I would recommend you get this book, especially from the missionary context, Apostolic Church Planning. Um, In it, he just puts this simple arrow of what it means to multiply churches. Gospel shared, disciples made, small groups started, church planted, elders uh, appointed. It was just published last year by University Press, um, and uh, God has permission to use that arrow. The world, the Great Commission, can be completed in our generation through a disciple-making, church-multiplying strategy and through victory and spiritual warfare. I want to end with this. Just not so long ago, a survey was made of the effective disciple-multiplying, church-multiplying servants of God in places like India and Africa. And as they surveyed them, this is what they discovered about their prayer lives. The leaders in India prayed on average three hours daily. They fasted a day a week. And they gathered regularly for three-hour team prayer meetings. They mobilized people to pray to the, to the, to the count of 100,000 intercessors. 
and would take prayer walks around their area asking for God to work. In Africa, the leaders there modeled prayer by praying with others. Their personal prayer lives were marked by one to three hours of daily prayer early in the morning. They had regular all-night, six-hour prayer vigils, teams gathering on a weekly basis for prayer and fasting, specifically for bondage and sins and persons of peace. One man recently was in Myanmar, and he asked an indigenous leader there about his strategy to send workers into unreached villages. The man replied, the secret is Fridays. Oh, what's it about Fridays? Well, on Fridays, we all come together and we fast and we pray every Friday all day. Well, what if you're going into a hostile village? Well, if we think it's going to be really hostile, we set aside seven days to fast and pray. That's when we go in and then let the chips fall where they may. A 19-year-old worker talked about this. He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go move into a village where there are no churches and no Christians. I'm going to build a small lean-to, work in the forest, work in the rice fields, and start sharing the gospel. I'm going to plant a church, appoint a leader, and then I'm going to move on and do it again. Well, how long do you think you'll do this? Until Jesus comes back. A coalition of a thousand pastors are working in Uttar Pradesh. And I told you about that early in the opening. That's northern India, one of the most unreached regions of the world, and certainly of India. They risk their lives every single day. One of them rides his bicycle in a village where there are no Christians. He puts a, bump, a, 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 a drum on his handlebars, pulls in. He says, I bang on my drum until a crowd comes out, and then I preach the gospel. We see people's hearts touched, we see them repent, and we see the birth of a church. Uh, What about other times? Oh, other times they beat me. What do you do then? Well, when I wake up, I ride to the next village. Is it any accident that Uttar Pradesh has gone in the last about 10 years from almost no Christians to 3% Christian? Six million believers. One man says, among Hindus and Buddhists, we're seeing signs and wonders with many miraculous healings. One pastor told Jonathan, maybe we're lazy, but we don't, we don't want to spend 12 weeks convincing them that Jesus is God. We just want God to show up. Persecution is the accelerant of this move on of God. When the church is persecuted, the church thrives. The places where the church is growing most rapidly are also some of the worst places of persecution. Well, what can you do to be a part of it? This is what he says. Make prayer a priority. Proclaim the gospel with boldness. Don't be ashamed of anything. If you're a, follow, if you're a follower of Christ, you have nothing to be ashamed of. Trust God to show up. Pray with confidence. Believe God still does stuff today. God's active around the world and he can do the same things here. So I just read you there something. And some of you doubted the story. Healings. Churches multiplying. But I actually didn't read you anything that wouldn't sound strange in the book of Acts, did I? Did I? 
So if because it happened last year creates a problem for you, do you really believe the book of Acts? Do I really believe the book of Acts if what I read happening there bothers me if it happens here? And I really think we have sealed the great works of God inside the book of Acts. And when they're happening in our world today, we question them because we don't know them. And we're on the sidelines, and God is working on the front lines. It's humbling to be here. Because I sense my own great need in these days. A part of me really wants to be a part of the Great Commission going forward. What about you? And my need is huge, it's great. But may God change what we think could happen in our world. We get on board with it and call our young people to it. There's six guys about to graduate from our missions program here. I'm excited about what God's going to do in their lives, but we need six more. I read there how God appointed 70. I'd love for 70 more. 70 more. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we worship you. With a God who's got something planned for the end times. And we're living in them. And you want the gospel to be preached as a witness to all nations. And Lord, we join you before that. We're humbled before it. And all we can do, as Ms. already stated, we can just cry out and say, God, deliver us. God, work. God, move. God, fill our hearts with faith in your spirit. And then, Lord, let us join you with a strategy that, you, that, that actually believes you for what you want done. Lord, may every church here plant two more. May every two churches here reach an unreached people group. Lord, would you spread a flame across our brothers and churches across America. May they see your reality at work. May we no longer question and doubt it and explain it away. Oh, God, let us be a part of it. Lord, you know my need. I cry out to you. You know each person's need, each church's need. We believe you can meet it. We worship you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.